I get most of my news from the internet, and recently, or occasionally, I spend time looking at the Huffington Post. Uh, the Huffington Post takes a decidedly left-leaning perspective on most uh, issues. Uh, but recently I found an article in there that intrigued me. It was by Emily to- uh, Timble, and it was called, Don't Believe the Lies, God Doesn't Have a Perfect Match for You. Uh, basically the article was a critique of a lot of the online Christian dating sites that uh, promise that they can find the one, the only God-suitable, uh, God-sent, God-ordained, uh, sent from heaven, husband or wife for you. Uh, and now in the process of the article, she critiques the idea that there is uh, one person or that, that God's intended way for us to find a life partner is to look for the one Uh, She says, (laughs) no one is perfect, and the idea of finding a perfect match can actually come from a rather self-centered, non-biblical view of uh, marriage. It was a good article. I could recommend it in in many ways. What interested me after I read the article was the comments uh, at the bottom. Uh, This is uh, very interesting to me. My guess is that most of the readers of the Huffington Post would not describe themselves as Orthodox Christians, uh, here were some of the comments that they wrote. One of them said, uh, in, in the article, she argues, Emily Timball, argues that um, uh, the idea of a soulmate is not God's idea. Here's what one of the commentator, commentators said. Actually, Emily, you said far more than you are intended. You are correct that the notion of soulmates is completely man-made. But then so is the notion of any God, too. <laughs> Here's another one. Of course there's no such thing as God's perfect match for you. If God even exists, he doesn't care who you're dating. I edited that word. He's got a cosmos to deal with. People are ridiculous. Now, someone mentioned among the comments here that that, um, the reason that we find marriage, there were a couple of Christians that commented on here, the reason we find marriage so difficult is because we are sinners. We are slaves to sin. And listen to what somebody wrote in, in response to that. Slaves of sin, you chain yourself. You actually enslave yourself to this kind of thought. And because of it, you will always suffer. The really terrible thing is that rational, sensible, logical, thinking people, um, implying that those who, who don't subscribe to these irrational, nonsensical, illogical, unthinking ideas about sin, uh, we... Logical people have the right to yank your chain that you have imposed on yourself every time they encounter you. You, because of your belief in sin, are not good for the human race and the civilization that the human race is trying to achieve. (laughs) Now, I know that comment threads are not a great uh, place to gauge the condition of our culture, Uh, but I was struck again as I was reading this, what is evident in hundreds of ways uh, every day, uh, there is a disconnect between what we believe and many people in our culture believe. Uh, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ, uh, we're really glad that you're here among those of us who are harmful to the human race and destroying the civilization they're trying to achieve. You took a great risk in coming this morning, and we appreciate it. Now, we believe, actually, that you cannot really understand Christianity without being conversant in the biblical vocabulary of sin. Now, I know that that word sin invites mockery, and some of it we deserve because of how we throw this word around thoughtlessly. 
But it really is a crucial ingredient in understanding why we think the Bible, why we think the gospel, why we think Christianity contains good news. Uh, we're considering these things uh, today, uh, these uh, days, the system of worship that God designed for the Israelites in the book of Leviticus. And throughout this system of worship that God imposed, designed for them, there are repeated graphic reminders about the nature and the existence of sin. In fact, the passage we're going to turn to today, Leviticus 4, has the highest concentration of the word sin in all of the Bible. Um, I, I've suggested to you uh, that if um, uh, that Leviticus is a book about how unholy people live in the presence of holy God, and the emphasis in the book is between is on that contrast. It, there are repeated things here. Everything that God built almost in this system of worship is here to remind us uh, to to build into us the knowledge and conviction that that there is a great difference between we who are human beings unholy people, and God who is holy. We, we need help with this, getting this, this um, concept in our mind. Do, do you remember studying mythology in English class in high school? Do you remember that? Um, you learned the names of some of the Greek and Roman gods. Um, those stories reveal a certain theology, and the theology that those stories reveal is that, that to many, the gods were just like superhumans. They were like us in a lot of ways. They were just a little bit stronger, just a little bit more powerful. They shared all of our vices. They were lustful, vain, uh, angry, bitter, unforgiving. They needed to be paid off. Um, but they, they were basically like us only with superpowers. Uh, but the book of Leviticus argues that God is not just a superhuman. Now, we're made in his image, that's true. But he is in another category in holiness in goodness, in beauty. In fact, he is so magnificently unique that he is central enough that you can, in fact, you must center your whole life on him. I'm not sure what you would describe as what centers your life. Maybe it's your job or your family, um, your physique, um, your uh, uh, age, you center your whole life around, I'm, I'm this old and this is how I should act because this is the center of my life. Uh, your attainments, your education. I'm not sure what you center your life around. The, the claim of the Bible is that God is sufficient to be, and in fact, in order for the planets of your solar system to remain in orbit, God must be the sun at the center of your universe. And part of grasping that comes from understanding what the Bible says about sin and understanding this contrast. And this morning what I want to do from Leviticus 4, we're going to actually spend the next three weeks talking about sin. Um, Pastor Scott looked at my sermon notes, the green notes that are in the Bible, and he said, this is going to be kind of a depressing sermon, isn't it? Well, the next three weeks, we're going to be talking together about sin. I want to show you three things, three elements of what the Bible says about um, sin. Actually, what Leviticus says about sin. When the Bible talks about sin, it's complex, it's multifaceted. But this morning, I want to focus on the presence of sin, three things, the presence of sin, the power of sin, and the end of sin. Uh, that is, the presence of sin. Does it really exist? Why should I be concerned about it? Secondly, we're going to talk about the power of sin. What does sin do? 
what destruction does the Bible say that sin um, brings to the, to the human race? And third, we're going to talk about the end of sin. How do we get rid of it? If it's really as bad as the Bible says, what do we do about it? Now, let's start by talking about the presence of sin. What is it and does it really exist? Um, I have mentioned before that one of the problems in approaching the book of Leviticus is, or the challenges is that the culture is so different. Huh. There are things that, that they do that just seem so foreign to us. Now the point of the, what it says here is that it, it's trying to point us in the direction of eternal truths. These are temporary cultural customs that God ordained that are supposed to point to eternal things. The problem we have when we talk about sin is not only is this foreign, but in our culture, this, this eternal concept of sin is, is foreign too. Uh, the word used for uh, sin in the Bible basically means missing the mark. You've probably heard that before. Sin is, is missing the mark. Uh, it's used in Judges 30:16. In Judges 30:16, there were a group of, of men who were really well known for their slingshot abilities, and it said they could shoot a stone and they never missed a mark. They never sinned. What sin is? Uh, to sin is, is to miss. It's to miss God's standards. Or to use Paul's language, it's to fall short of the way that God intended life on earth to work. And from a Christian perspective, this is what we say about the world. This is why the world is in the condition that it's in, why it is so broken. We live, to use very shorthand, we live in a Genesis 3 world, a world where sin was introduced and its ruinous effects are everywhere. It doesn't matter who you are, what religious faith you believe or no religious faith, you have to in some way explain why the world is broken the way that it is and why it matters that it's broken the way it is. You don't, <laughs> the fact that it's broken is almost indisputable. Just think about some of the things that you have been reading in the newspaper recently. They all testify to the fact that something's not right. In the last two years, 60,000 people have been killed in Syria due to civil war. Uh, not too long ago, Harvard University, one of the most prestigious schools in America, suspended a significant number of students for uh, participating in the largest cheating scandal in American education. Did you hear the story? I'm sure you did. A bus driver this week was murdered, or in the last couple of weeks, a bus driver was murdered, and a little boy was kidnapped in Alabama and held in an underground bunker. Uh, and in Lancaster County, beautiful, peaceful, Bible Belt, Lancaster County, a funeral director is in prison today. His life is falling apart. He's left bodies to decompose in the basement of his funeral home. Uh, overseas, in elite educational institutions, in the South, and in our own backyard, things are not the way they're supposed to be. Now, in talking to most people about what sin is and the fact that sin exists, this would be evidence enough. Things just aren't right. If they need more convincing, you, you, you can talk to them about their own lives. Has, has anybody ever hurt you? Oh. Has anybody ever used you? You ever felt abused by somebody? Uh, has ever, anybody ever neglected you, forgotten you, failed to keep their promises? Oh, Yeah. There's nobody that you talk to who will, oh, no, I can't think of any. No, no one will say that. 
What's even more, more uh, uh, poignant is you can take them the next step. H- have you ever broken your promises to somebody? Have you ever taken somebody for granted? Have you ever used somebody? I think that what the Bible says about human beings and the world that God made is the best explanation for what happens. This is why I think Christianity is compelling. It rings true because what it says about us fits the facts of what happens better than any other explanation. Now think with me for a minute about what happened in Alabama for the last couple of weeks. They, they didn't report very much about this, and the reason they didn't report it is because they thought the kidnapper probably was listening to the news. So they didn't talk about it as much as other stories might have uh, been announced. Uh, two men are dead as a result of what happened in Alabama. One man was a bus driver who was killed trying to protect the lives of the children that he was driving uh, from home from school. The other man was a murderer and a kidnapper was killed during the rescue operation. Now what explains these two actions here, why one man is a hero and one man is a criminal? These two things, two men. The Bible says that, that, that human beings are made in God's image and because of that we are capable of great good, great acts of kindness and mercy. I don't know whether that bus driver was a Christian or not. I don't know if he, was, he could have been a Muslim, a Hindu, a Jew, or an atheist. He is still made in God's image and is capable of great sacrifice. And, and, and that was. And rightly do we honor what he did. Now why would we do that even? The Bible tells us because we're made in God's image, we have the capacity to appreciate an act like this and recognize that what he did was a noble, good, and right sacrifice. That too is being part being made in God's image, that, that what he did was, has real significance and it's not just the random act of a certain arrangement of molecules that have consciousness uh, but really have no eternal significance. If, if you don't believe that there is a God and that there is a life outside of this one, the sacrifice that that bus driver made is ultimately very empty. The Bible says that we are also sinful human beings, that we're capable of great evil. And so what happens in Syria and what happens to highly educated uh, college students and funeral directors and uh, kidnappers in Alabama, it doesn't surprise us. This is the dual nature of human beings as we are made in God's image in rebellion against him, missing the standards, his perfect standards. The Bible affirms that sin exists that this, condition, that this condition of falling short exists. Sin is, is present. Uh, G.K. Chesterton said, and maybe I've been doing it the last few minutes, he said that the doctrine of sin is the most objectively verifiable doctrine in all Christianity. All you have to do is read the newspaper. Not only does sin exist, but sin is powerful. And here's where I want to turn my attention here, uh, even more specifically to the text. Sin is powerful. Verses uh, 1 and 2 of of Leviticus chapter 4 focus our attention on a particular type of sin. Look what it says. The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, when anyone sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands. Now the word translated unintentionally here uh, literally could be translated goes astray. Anybody who goes astray. 
I'm not sure that the word intentional or unintentional is the best translation because you can go astray intentionally and unintentionally. Uh, just, just think about this. <laughs> I have children. I send them on errands. Or <laughs> yesterday I was trying to do some work around the house, trying to pick things up, and uh, one thing leads to another, doesn't it? You, you find something that needs to go away. There's the towels I need to take upstairs and put them in the closet. But you walk up the stairs, and on the way, on the stairs, where certain little people have left them, there are books and sweatshirts and, and hats. And while you're going up the stairs, you pick all of those things up, and you put them away, and then you go back downstairs and realize that you made it down there with the towels still in your hand that you were supposed to go put away. I went astray from my task unintentionally. You can go astray intentionally, though, sometimes, too. I might be taking those towels upstairs and, and get there and find my uh, uh, laptop. Up. Oh, I should check my email right now. I'm going to intentionally set the towels down, which or I won't be able to find them next time I'm looking for them, and check my email. Intentionally going astray, unintentionally going astray. Um, that that uh, sense of, there's a sense here in this um, um, ignorance here. Sins done in ignorance or maybe in weakness. Look at verse 13. If the whole Israelite community sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, even though the community is unaware of the matter, there's a ignorance, they're guilty. Or uh, look at verse 22, there's ignorance here. When a leader sins unintentionally, when he goes astray and does what is forbidden, in any of the commands of the Lord his God, he is guilty when he is made aware of this sin. Oh, I didn't know that was... I didn't know. He must bring as his offering, and there it goes on. This describes accidental, inadvertent sins. Sins you might not be aware of, or again, as some suggest, sins that are a consequence of human frailty. Maybe like Romans 7, where Paul says, the good I know I should do, I don't do. And the bad things that I don't want to do, that's the things I do. Sins that are a result of just being human. Uh, look at chapter 5, verse um, number 4 here. There's carelessness mentioned. If a person thoughtlessly takes an oath to do anything, just, just carelessness. Um, Kenneth Matthews compares sins that this is this passage is talking about to catching a cold. On average, he says, uh, this seems a little high to me, but on average he said that human beings get seven colds a year. It's February, so in our church, when everybody, anybody ever bows to pray, you know what happens. <coughs> All over the building. That's, that's what happens. You get, you get colds. Um, cold germs are everywhere. You can't do anything to avoid them. They're on, they're on handles, they're on doorknobs, they're, cold germs are just everywhere and you get them. These are the sort of, sort of sins like that, that we're just human beings. Now, I, I, uh, pointing that out here, that does not make us innocent. No one will be able to say to God, I, just, I didn't know, or no one will be able to say, God, I'm only human. Remember, all of these, these things make you guilty. You are still accountable to God for them. There is no ignorance of the law in God's holy system. Now, the Old Testament distinguishes this type of sin from other types of sins. In fact, 
Um, you can see that on the green sheet here. In Numbers 15, in a passage of Scripture where he's talking about, uh, where Moses is, is talking about other unintentional sins, like here in Leviticus 4, the text of Numbers 15 says this, But anyone who sins defiantly, whether native-born or alien, blasphemes the Lord, and that person must be cut off from his people because he has despised the Lord's word and broken his commands. That person must surely be cut off. His guilt remains on him. Now, these defiant sins are sometimes called high-handed sins. Your text actually might say sins of the high hand. And, and what distinguishes these sins from going astray is that there's a, a defiance in them. I don't care, God, that you say this is wrong. I'm going to do it. I know what you want, and I hate it, and I hate you, and I'm not going to do it. Defiant, high-handed sins. Now, in the text here, Numbers 15, there is no sacrifice that can be made for these sort of sins. In fact, the people are to be cut off for that. I think this may be here the background for what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 12, verses 31 and 32. You can look at it there here. This is sometimes called the unforgivable sin. And Jesus says, And I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Have you ever talked to somebody who says, I, I know, I know I committed the unpardonable sin, and God can't possibly forgive me? Have you ever talked to somebody like that? Well, uh, I think here what Jesus is describing and what Numbers is describing is they are describing unrepentant, obstinate, stubborn rejection of God. Um, th- there is just this attitude of obstinance and rebellion against God not to be forgiven. I think I would say to somebody, if they said to me, I, I've committed this, I, I know that I have looked at God and said, I know it's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. I know, I must be guilty of this. I think what I would say to them is, if you care about that, if your conscience is still bothering you, then you are not guilty of this sin. Because even the feeling of this, the soft-heartedness toward God is evidence of his grace in your life. If you have committed this sin, you don't care. In fact, you're, you, you could brag about it. I don't care what God says. If you do care, though, it's evidence of God's kindness and his grace still at work in your life. So there's going astray, there's defiant sins, and then actually there's another category of sins. There's sins for which there are no sacrifice. Um... There, uh, there are sins scattered throughout the, the, uh, the Pentateuch. There are sins where, where God says, don't offer a sacrifice for this. There's no sacrifice that can be made. Uh, most of them have to do with breaking the Ten Commandments. There is no sacrifice for defiant murder, no sacrifice for thievery, no sacrifice for adultery. Now, God can forgive those sins. Forgiveness is possible, but there is no specific sacrifice that can be made for them, and thus no specific sign of forgiveness through the sacrifice. Uh, for example here, in, in Psalm 51, after David commits adultery and murder, he says in his prayer in Psalm 51, you don't want a sacrifice. And the reason God doesn't want a sacrifice is because the law says don't offer sacrifices for murder, for adultery. 
The only way that David knew that he could be forgiven or that he was forgiven is that God sent the prophet Nathan to tell him, you've been forgiven. There was no way within the sacrificial system for, those, for forgiveness to be declared. Uh, that doesn't mean that forgiveness was impossible. It's just that there was no way for it to be officially announced through sacrifice. Now, these are all here um, different ways in which we miss the mark, but the emphasis actually in the Bible here in Leviticus 4 is on what sin does. What does sin do? Sin pollutes. Sin pollutes. That is its power. It pollutes. It stains and defiles. Now, remember that what's unique about the book of Leviticus is that God lived with the people He physically came and dwelt with them. Unlike at any other time, He moved in with the people in undisguised, uncovered holiness. And the nation, because God lived there, was sacred space. Now again, here's another foreign concept. Do we have sacred space in American culture? Uh, Maybe. Are there sacred American spaces? Independence Hall? Uh, The Lincoln Memorial, maybe, the sacred space. The Alamo, if you ever go to the Alamo, uh, they have a sign. uh, This is a shrine uh, dedicated in memory of those who died here. Please remove your hats and refrain from loud speaking while you're here. And there are um, guides in the Alamo who, if you are talking too loud or wearing your hat, they will come and ask you to be quiet and remove your hat. Um, that, that's sacred space. We don't often have that concept. So maybe, maybe I could use a better illustration of this. Um, we're thinking in our house about getting a dog. Oh. Um, I think we would enjoy having a dog. We would probably like having a dog. But the reason we don't have a dog is because dogs take a lot of work. Um, the first thing that you have to do, what is the first thing you do with your puppy? House training, right? You want to teach the dog to do his business outside, not inside the house. If the dog goes inside the house, that will defile your home. It will bring pollution into your home. So the dog has to be trained. And if the dog is not trained and the dog defiles the home, the dog faces the possibility of encountering his owner's wrath. And in order to avoid the wrath, the dog's pollution must be cleansed. You clean messes like that in your house with a little bit of bleach. You clean messes in God's house with blood. Now, let's look at the passage here again. The format here of this is quite repetitive. You're you're maybe getting the theme of Leviticus and how this works. Um, There are uh, sacrifices in verses 3 through 12 of going astray sins for a high priest. Then in verses 13 through 21... There's going astray sacrifices for the whole community. Then in verses 22 through 26, there's for a leader. Then in verses 27 through 35, the end of the chapter, there is uh, for any member of the community. And there are similarities and differences. And the reason that there's this repetition and format is because most Levites, most priests, before they begin their service, would memorize the book of Leviticus. And this, this uh, pattern is a memory tool. And there's similarities and differences between what these various groups are supposed to do. The similarities involve bringing the sacrificial animal, one without defect, into the courtyard. We're going to just look at the first paragraph here. It says, 
he, that is the high priest, is to present the bull at the entrance to the tent of the meeting before the Lord. He is to lay his hand on its head and slaughter it before the Lord. This should sound very familiar. Very familiar with this from what we've been talking about in the book of Leviticus. You bring the bull in, you lean on the bull, you slaughter the bull, and you collect the blood. And then uh, part of the offering was to be um, burned on the altar. Look at here verse um, 8. Ver- look at verse 8. He shall, that's the priest, shall remove all the fat from the bull of the sin offering, the fat that covers the inner parts or is connected to them, both kidneys with the fat on them near the loins, and the covering of the liver, which he will remove with the kidneys, just as the fat is removed from the ox sacrifice as a fellowship offering. Then the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering. So, same thing for all these groups. Bring the animal in, slaughter the animal, collect the blood. Talk about the blood in a minute. Part of the animal goes on the burnt offering altar and it's burned. And then in verse 12, um, verse 11 actually, but the hide of the bull and all its flesh as well as the head and legs, the inner parts and offal, that is the rest of the bull, he must take outside the camp to a place ceremonially clean where the ashes are thrown and burn it in a wood fire on the ash heap. So this is the pattern. Whoever you are, you bring the animal in, you slaughter it, you collect the blood. Again, we'll get to that. You burn part of it in the offering, uh, and the burnt altar offering, and then you take the rest of it outside the camp and you burn it out there. That's what all of these groups are supposed to do. Now the difference between them, the high priest, the community, the leader, the member of the community, is in what they bring and what they do with the blood. For example, what they bring. A high priest is supposed to bring a young bull. Same thing with the whole Israelite community in verse uh, 14. They're supposed to bring a young bull. But look at verse 22. When a leader sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the commands of the Lord his God, he is guilty. When he's made aware of the sin he, must, he committed, he must bring as an offering a male goat. So we move from a bull to a male goat. <laughs> Somebody in our congregation... I was joking with them. They would have access to farm animals. And I said to this member of our church, I said, now we're under the new covenant. Don't bring goats to church next Sunday. Don't expect you to do that. Well, this person walked in today and brought me a chocolate-shaped goat. <laughs> said, I brought my goat to worship. I won't tell you who she is, but her initials are MVH. <laughs> okay, so verse 27 Verse 27, look what happens here. The member of the community. If you're going to bring chocolate goats, you can bring them all you want. So let's just say that. All right, verse uh, 28 here. This is a member of the community. He must, when he is made aware of the sin he committed, he must bring as his offering for the sin he committed a female goat. All right, now look at chapter 5, verse 7. Um, if, because when he brings a sin offering, he cannot afford a lamb, he is to bring two doves or two young pigeons to the Lord. And if you can't afford two young pigeons, verse 11 of chapter 5 says, if, however, he cannot afford two doves or two young pigeons, he is to bring as an offering for his sin a flower, a tenth of an ephah of fine flour. Now, why, why are these differences here? I think what, 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 the, what they're trying to do, what, what God is doing, what he's announcing through this, is he is saying to the people, there is no exemption from this. It doesn't matter who you are, 
Sin is a universal problem. It's not restricted to the poor or the wealthy. And whoever you are, whatever, how much power, however much money you have, when you sin, you bring an offering. Uh, Money and power can be confusing filters in our society, don't they? Uh, When you try to determine right and wrong and good and evil, uh, things get confusing. In some circles, having lots of money or having lots of power means that you are good, that God is rewarding you, that God is blessing you. You're an upstanding person and you don't need to be accountable. I'm a powerful... How many times do you read in the newspaper some story about one of our congressmen... Uh, it's not limited to Congress, who, who violates some law but doesn't really get punished because he's a member of Congress. Does that, ha- does that make you mad when you read that? Well, it's not, not in God's system. Um, in other circles, on the other hand, having lots of money means automatically that you're a cheat, that you're a thief, that you're a scoundrel. Right? Being poor, sometimes to some people, being poor means that you're guilty, especially guilty of being lazy or unambitious or wasteful. But again, on the other hand, being poor in some circles means that you're a victim and that you can't really help what you do and you're not really responsible. And God said that's all hogwash. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter how much power you have, doesn't matter how much money you have, sin is a universal problem something that we all must face, irrespective of our age, our race, our economic status, our educational background, our position in society. This is something we are all guilty of. Now, that's the difference in the animals. There's also difference here in what you do with the blood. Look here at what the high priest is supposed to do with the blood. Verse 5. Um, then the anointed priest of chapter four, four, chapter 4, verse 5, then the anointed priest shall take some of the bull's blood and carry it into the tent of meeting. He goes into the tent itself with the blood. He is to dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of it seven times before the Lord in front of the curtain of the sanctuary. The priest shall then put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense that is before the Lord in the tent of meeting. The rest of the bull's blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar burnt offering at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So a high priest is supposed to go into the uh, tabernacle itself and he's supposed to stand in front of the curtain that guards off the holiest place in all of Israel, in all of the camp. And that holiest place was where the Ark of the Covenant is. This is where, this is God's specific room. The tabernacle is God's house. The courtyard is God's yard, but here is God's room. And this is where he is. And the high priest is to take and dip and sprinkle seven times blood on the curtain that separates him from that holiest place, that holiest place where only the high priest goes. Then he's supposed to take some of the blood and sprinkle it on the altar of incense that was in front of the uh, uh, tabernacle, in front of that curtain uh, separating or uh, between him and the holy place. Actually, some of Steve's artwork here uh, pictures this quite well. You can see that blue and red uh, and uh, black there is representative of the curtain that separated the holy place from the holiest place. It's where the high priest would sprinkle the blood. And then there's that altar there with the smoke coming out, the altar of incense, and the high priest would take and put some of the blood on the horns of that altar. Very um, uh, Levitical art we have in our church, right? That's what a high priest did. Now, look, (coughs) and the same thing uh, was done um, 
with the sins of the whole Israelite community. But look here what happens with a sin that a leader does. Um, look at verse 25 of chapter 4. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering of the leader with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. So a leader's sin offering did not go into the Holy of Holies. Instead, it stayed outside the tent at the altar of burnt offering. There were two altars, the altar of incense inside the building and the altar of burnt offering outside the building. And a leader's blood only went outside the building, not inside. Now, why is that? Why the difference? The blood goes as far as the worshiper goes. The, the purification effect of the, the blood had to spread as far as the polluting effects of sin went. The higher, <coughs> the broader your responsibilities, the worse your sin, the greater the ripple effect it had. Now think with me for a minute about E. coli bacteria. Pleasant, right? Um, if you in your home have an outbreak of E. coli bacteria, it will be bad, and the people that you serve, your family, will get sick. Right? What happens, though, if a grocery store has an E. coli uh, outbreak? How much does that infection spread, and how polluting effect does it have on a community? Well, the high priest, because of his authority, because of the, the role he plays, his blood, the blood for his sin offering has to go farther than it does for a leader in the community or a member of the community itself. I, I need to read this passage with care and it should give our elders pause. The greater your responsibility before the people of God, the worse the consequences of your sin. The New Testament is not unaware of this. If you are an elder, if you are a Sunday school teacher, if you're a ministry leader, if you're a worship leader, you have more potential to damage the congregation than other people by your sin. That's why elders are supposed to be publicly rebuked in 1 Timothy chapter 5. That's why in James chapter 3 it says that those who teach are going to be held to stricter accountability. Your sin is, because of the responsibility that you have been given, is more poisonous, more of a pollutant, among the community. And you and I who are elders, men, you should read this passage very soberly, very carefully. Now, huh, I'm going to get ahead of myself for a little bit, just for a brief moment. Uh, as we move through the book of Leviticus, since this offering purifies the sacred space, since it was the hygienic equivalent of bleach, um, uh, uh, saving the... the cleansing the, the polluted space. Some people think it would be better to call this a purification offering and not a sin offering. In fact, your translation might say purification offering. The reason it's helpful to keep that in mind here right now is because in a few weeks we're going to find out that you need to offer purification offerings for things other than sin. For example, uh, a woman who gives birth to a baby has to offer a purification offering. And now some of you will read Leviticus and you'll say, what is sinful about having a baby? Nothing. It just makes you ritually unclean, like sin does too. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. I'll just set that, you can think about that for a minute. The point here is, is that, that sin pollutes. Its contamination spreads. I, you can understand this, I think, easily, can't you? The polluting effect of sin. Think about one of the great commands in the book of Leviticus. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
beautiful command, isn't it? Every, there's nobody in the whole world, Christian or not, who doesn't like that verse. It's a beautiful verse. Love your neighbor as yourself. Um, think with me, though, about how, what, how turning from that command spreads. It gives rise to all sorts of isms, doesn't it? Racism. Racism is the societal failure to love your neighbor as yourself, and it is ugly. Isn't it, isn't it a pollutant? Isn't racism defiling in our culture in ways that uh, you and I who are in the majority culture, that's soon to change in the next 20 years, you and I who are in the majority culture, we, there's ways that we don't even understand how this is true, how racism is pollutant and defiling. Uh, how about um, ageism? Isn't that a, a polluting sin? Sexism. Isolationism. Is the fact that you don't know your neighbor's names unhealthy, isn't it? Unhealthy? Uh, what about the health of a congregation that doesn't know its neighbors or isn't known by its neighbors? Isn't that unhealthy? No. Sin pollutes, and, and what you think might be a tiny little cherished sin grows and infiltrates and invades and despoils the landscape. Maybe you can see this perhaps in how, too, the New Testament talks about sacred space. See, under the New Covenant, since Jesus has come, there is no such thing as a holy building. There is no sacred rooms. This is one of the reasons I don't, when I refer to this room, this room we're in right now, I don't call it a sanctuary. I would never call it a sanctuary anyway, but I don't even call it a sanctuary. Um, I was raised in a church where this was sacred space. The sanctuary was sacred space. Now, I, uh, I hope that, uh, that holy things happen in this room, and I appreciate the idea of, of trying to be respectful. Paul is actually more concerned about a different sort of sacred space. The sacred space being not a community, not a building, but a community. Look, look at 1 Corinthians 3. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. The sacred space is not the building, it's the community, it's the people, and it is to be treated with care, such care as, as much care and consideration as the Old Testament sacrifice uh, of the Old Covenant demanded. In the specific context of 1 Corinthians 3, Paul here is talking about those who lead in the congregation, factionalism in the church. Be careful about how you lead the church. Be careful how you try to influence people and why you try to influence people and what means you use because the congregation is sacred space. As the passage continues in chapter 5, there's a defiling issue in 1 Corinthians 5 of the influence of sexual immorality. There's a man who has a relationship with his stepmother. Paul says, get him out of the congregation. Don't pray with him. Don't ask him to teach. Don't let him lead. Don't let him read scripture because the congregation is sacred space. The people are a holy community and his sin defiles this is why we practice church discipline. Because the church, the people, are sacred space. Paul goes even further in this in, in uh, chapter 6. Your body is a temple, he says. Not just the church, but you. Your body is the temple. It's sacred space. 
Don't use it as a dwelling place for bitterness, for criticism, for gossip, for sexual immorality. Don't, Paul says in Ephesians 4, because the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, don't grieve Him by indulging in bitterness. Do not, brothers and sisters, take this matter lightly. Thousands and thousands of animals died to provide a dwelling place of God and it was meant to teach you that sin is costly and it's toxic. Why do you tolerate it so easily in your life? Sin stains. Has anybody thought about Macbeth this morning? Huh. Lady Macbeth, one of Shakespeare's most famous characters. What did she have on her hands? The stain of blood of murdering her husband, and she couldn't wash it out. Sin stains. And does it stain permanently? Here, here's the end of sin. This is, this is the, the story of the Bible that leads to this perfect cleansing. You need it. The rest of the readers of the New Testament did too. In fact, the, the, the book of Hebrews uses this same imagery from Leviticus 4 to think to help us think about what Jesus did. Uh, listen to uh, Hebrews 9.22. I think it's written down in your sheet there for you. In fact, uh, the author of Hebrews says, the law, Leviticus, requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary, not just for the earthly things to be cleansed this way, but for the heavenly things to be purified. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Jesus is the ultimate high priest who doesn't bring into the Holy of Holies before God uh, uh, a bull's blood. He brings his own blood. Verse 25, Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus is the one who provides cleansing. Perfect, purifying cleansing through his own sacrifice. Hebrews 13 actually takes us a little bit further, doesn't it? It says that after Christ um, died, he, 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 he died himself outside the camp, the place where the sin offering was burned. And he did it for our forgiveness in order to make us holy. Christ, by his death on the cross, removes the foul spot, the awful stain. He's the ultimate sin offering. Understanding that actually gives you the power to take sin seriously, to, to fight it. We fight forgiven sin. Sin is devastating, it's costly, it's defiling, it ruins everything. But because Jesus has disarmed it, we can face it, we can confess it. We can fight it. We can resist it. We lived in Dallas uh, for a number of years, and we were there one spring. There were terrible forest fires in Mexico. And the weather patterns were such that it brought the smoke right to the city. It was gray. It was cloudy. Sometimes you could smell it. It wasn't quite 
a smoky smell, but the air just did not smell right. People wore masks, some people, when, when they went outside. Uh, it, the air, it was stale. People stayed inside. They were prisoners of the pollution. They were enslaved to the pollution. We are not slaves to the idea of sin, but we can be in slavery to sin itself. But because of Christ, it's not necessary that we be enslaved. Knowing this helps unholy people live in the presence of a holy God. Let's pray, shall we? Holy God, we come before you today um, through Jesus Christ, again, who is our mediator, our great high priest, who has entered heaven with his own blood for our sake. Father, we, we confess that we are very accommodating to our own sin and we easily rationalize it and excuse it in ourselves. <laughs> Father, forgive us for hating other people's sins more than we hate our own. We ask that you would, um, as, as we think about this, this cost that was paid, this price that was paid in Leviticus 4 for sin, would you uh, remind us of the value of Christ's eternal sacrifice? He who is uh, our uh, great Redeemer, our Savior, our Rescuer, recognizing its cost, recognizing the price that was paid, set us free, we pray. We are, some people think we're slaves to the idea of sin. We uh, recognize that you can be a slave, not to sin's idea, but to sin itself. Set us free, set us free, please. No one can change the leper's spots, but Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. We give you thanks and praise for that. It's in Christ's name we ask these things. Amen.